Welcome to usresearch.fm. Today we have Daniel Pidcock. Some of you might have seen him, heard him speak at UX Brighton 2018. Daniel Pidcock is a UX researcher and he's working on a software called Gleanly, which he'll tell us more about. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, when we usually start these shows, we love to talk about how did you end up as a UX researcher? That's my favorite question. Yeah, okay. Well, I have to say, first of all, I don't really consider myself a researcher. I consider myself a designer more than anything. Right. So um, I do I do, do research, of course, as, as part of, a, you know, being a UX designer, it's a very important part of it. Um, but I know some UX researchers and they're just much more skilled at it than I am. So I'd never make that claim. Um, Fair enough. But yeah, I, I, <laughs> I started my, as a child, I wanted to be a car designer. Uh, I just love cars so much. And uh, so I used to draw cars and design cars for myself. Um, and then I started making logos to go alongside them. Um, and then I started doing, enjoying the logos more than I enjoyed the cars. So um, mm. I, I kind of fell into graphic design that way. And um, uh, I think a kind of a passion for the psychology of design and uh, why um, people like one thing and one thing works and another thing doesn't, uh, it led me quite naturally into UX uh, as, as a career. And yeah, I think it's the perfect blend of people and design and UI and, you know, everything all, all comes together really nicely. So just brilliant job. Love it so much. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I was, I was looking at your LinkedIn and it's fascinating. First of all, I love how you've sort of thoroughly described uh, how sort of each step in your career and what you did there, what were the successes, what, what, le what let you transition to the next step. So that's really fun to read. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And have you, you see my CV? Uh, it's about 40 pages thick. Very, very, um, very in-depth. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting. One of the very interesting roles was the vaping business. Uh, looks like you were early to that. Yeah, that was quite that was a complete accident actually. Um, I'm, I'm a very passionate advocate of um, of vaping and e-cigarettes as an alternative to tobacco. Right. Um, and I actually advise the the council in, um, in in Bristol on their stop smoking policy as regards to e-cigarettes uh, nowadays. But yeah, I, um, I was just passionate about the flavours more than anything and. Um, Start, yeah, started uh, working on something and uh, it, it accidentally grew <laughs> into right. a business and yeah yeah it's, so, it's, um, it's fascinating yeah especially with the current valuations of companies like jewel it's it's, it's really blowing up oh yeah um, absolutely anyway so so back to ux research so let's let's start let's start talking about the first time you sort of started dabbling with ux research cool um so uh, I would say that I didn't realize I was doing US, UX research to start off with. Right. Um, years and years ago, I used to have an agency with a business partner of mine called Liam. And um, we took a very business-minded approach is the way we saw it to doing work. So someone would come to us with an idea for a new website or app or something like that. I mean, apps were only just starting to take off in those days um, with the advent of the iPhone. And... Um, so what the first question we would ask is, well, why do you want to do this? What, do you, what are you trying to achieve? And more than often, it's, it was a case of we want more business or we want to encourage people to buy more from us. So we'd start actually testing and, and talking to their customers and looking at things. We just saw that as, as, as almost, like, um, uh, almost like a startup 
uh, mindset of like mm-hmm. build the smallest thing, test it, you know, before you build it, put it in front of some customers and get some feedback from them. And I didn't even realize such a thing. I mean, UX did exist back then. Of course it did. It has existed for decades, but we didn't realize that what it is, what it was. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, it, but we found that was really quite successful. We, and, you know, we accidentally were doing quite an agile thing as well. We didn't really know what agile was in those days, but right. um, we would quite a similar thing um, with that. And um, yeah, it was a very fun uh, way to, to create products that we believed actually worked rather than just, um, you know, rather than actually proven to work rather than just we believed they worked. That's what I mean by that. Right. So at, at first it just started with, um, just sort of common sense research of just trying to empathize with users and paying close attention to what they're asking for and what they need. And, yeah. and, at, and at what point did you sort of start using more formal methods? Or, or, or when did you attempt to study some of these methods or find out what other people are doing in UX research? Well, it's hard to put my finger on exactly when that would be, but um, I think it was, um, we, we decided when, um, towards the end of uh, running that agency that we wanted to build a product of our own. And um, so we had an idea for something called Beatree. I won't go into it. It's long dead, <laughs> completely failed as well, unfortunately. Um, but it was a fantastic learning experience for me of how to create um, a, a digital product from scratch for myself, if that makes sense, rather than for someone else. And it is very different when you're doing it for yourself than if you, as an agency. Right. And, um, you know, I think that's when I, I started to formalize those kind of um, methods a lot more and start to understand that, you know, other people had similar methods that were the were more developed and and they they um you know they could provide a real good insight on on how to to do this properly uh, and especially with you know looking once we uh we launched uh beep treat and eventually flopped <laughs> right. um it was interesting to look back at it and see what we could have done better and uh that led me to understand a lot more about the agile process for instance and, and how we could have uh, done that a lot in a lot more of an agile manner right. uh, and a much better agile manner and yeah and, and that's when i started i suppose becoming officially aware of ux right interesting uh, as, as a yeah yeah and, and what was this product and what were the some of the first research methods that you used well, it's, it's an interesting one, actually. So um, I think it's interesting. It might be completely boring, but sure. yeah. um, so we were doing a job for Ford, um, uh, the motor company, mm-hmm. where they wanted to, they were launching, I think it was a new Mondeo, and uh, they wanted people to go in there. They had this idea, you could go in there, you'd connect your, this like um, near field communication card mm-hmm. up to your Facebook account. Mm-hmm. And you could go over to the bottom of any of the cars that you liked. There's like I think it was about six different models mm-hmm. concepts. And you could go over and tap your your card, your name badge onto it, mm-hmm. and that would like it. Facebook. Right. Uh, and so it was kind of a fun way for them to kind of get on board with social media at the same time, get people to vote for their favorite car. So it's kind of research as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just thought, wouldn't that be amazing if you could just walk in anywhere and go, oh, this is a nice shop. Oh, I love this restaurant. <laughs> just tap. Yeah. Like, right. So it was like swipe uh, to start off with. Right. But back in those days, you know, near field communication, it was it was a very young um, art. <laughs> right. uh, it was a very new technology and not many people had it. So we decided to go down the road of QR codes, uh, which was actually one of the reasons it failed. No one likes QR codes. Okay. We thought it was brilliant. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so the idea, and instead of liking, you got a discount. So it, basically the idea was back in the days when disc, the discounting 
um, world was going crazy with Groupon and um, Voucher Cloud, which is a local business to us, had just been, you know, given five million pounds. And um, we um, we wanted to be the the alternative to that. So rather than the Groupon model, where you give a, a massive percentage off to get people through the door, right. you'd actually just give a small tree to your existing customers in exchange for them promoting you on Facebook. So it would say, you know, uh, if has just had um, buy one, get one free coffee at Starbucks, mm-hmm. you know, he loves this cafe, you know, and if I, if I respect your opinion, which of course I do, yeah. um, <laughs> I would go, okay, well, maybe I should go down and try this, this, you know, cafe restaurant or, or whatever it is, you know? Right. So um, I think the idea sound, but it was our execution. Um, and, you know, the, we did a lot of research, but I don't think we ever really truly solved um, the, the big stepping stone, which was, it, it was a little bit too hard to do. Right. And that little tiny bit of friction was enough for it not to work. Right. Um, and, 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 not, and would you say this friction was the, the QR code or? Partly, yeah. And um, I think if we were to do it now, we would just do it on a locality basis. But even then, even GPS um, wasn't that accurate. But it would have been accurate enough, I think, and we could have found ways through it. But we didn't spend enough time recognizing that flaw. Right. So, we, you know, that wasn't enough on our radar. We could tell, you know, it, it could be better. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. But we, I don't think we recognized that it would actually end up being a bit of... Um, of a, of a complete blocker to the product itself. Now, it didn't help at the same time as we were launching. Um, companies like um, uh, Voucher Cloud suddenly were, you know, suffering massive losses, and they they made their product free rather than a chargeable product, which put us on a back foot. Um, yeah. And despite us being the antithesis of those kind of companies, we were still lumped in together. So why would a customer come and pay us when they could get Voucher Cloud for free? So right. um, that was that was something we couldn't control. But there was fundamental issues with the product, and and you know looking back and being aware of those um i think better ux mythology in those days would have allowed us to spot those and solve those early and who knows uh, traded out of that kind of strange you know <laughs> industry time interesting you know, so really it's certainly interesting. Um, yeah it's really interesting how you point to um i mean hindsight 2020 but how you point to a lack of uh, a ux research methodology which could have had a significant business outcome now, more specifically, like oh, if you could go, if you could go back, what, what, how would you change your research process at that point? I think uh, the, the fundamental flaw with with a lot of our research was uh, there was too much bias in there, mm. um, and you know, I was only just becoming aware of, of the UX world and the uh, methodology that was out there. And right. um, I would say that you know I, I wasn't a trained or um, knowledgeable researcher mm. so there was probably a lot of um, bias being um, coming into our research um, we were probably leading um, users um, too much on things on occasion yeah. and we were going too high res too quickly so you know, I really believe in is is trying to test you know as quickly as possible as little you know with as little as possible and you know building up from there um, and you know by the time we were testing we'd already kind of built stuff you know even if it was quite quite basic MVP stuff, yeah. but it still meant that we were kind of committed to going down that direction gotcha. and, and to ignoring kind of warning flags, you know? <laughs> right. So I, I'm, I'm assuming this is before you ever read the mom test or similar books. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think I'd read a, um, a, a research or UX book at all at that stage. Okay. You know, this is a good decade. Yeah. I, I think anyone who's tried to build companies, most people have been down that road where, um, just they sort of don't realize the weight of their own biases and 
only when when it crashes and burns do they sort of their eyes open up. Um, yeah, and I, I think I still suffer with that now. I think I, I don't think many people find it easy to to get around that, right? You know, right. especially when it's a product that you love and you believe in. It's very easy to get caught up in your own, you know, personal hype, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Speaking speaking of that, let's use that to sort of segue to what you're building today. And uh, I had a chance to see a demo as part of your presentation at UX Brighton. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I'd love for you to tell us more about what you're building and why. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, well, um, a few years ago, I was uh, working with, um, uh, you know, FTSE 100 uh, global uh, company mm-hmm. and uh, UX team. And, uh, they had a lot of um, UX researchers, designers, BAs and such like. And what, one of the problems we had is we were all creating this knowledge all the time. Yeah. And we didn't really have a good way of storing it. Mm-hmm. So, we would, you know, each project we would write up a report, we would produce a, a slide deck or a PDF mm-hmm. going, this is what we learned, this is what we did. Um, and then we'd move on to the next product yeah. uh, or project. And I, I know we noticed that, you know, say I was working on the basket um, this quarter. Right. So what do we know about the basket? Well, I think Jamie worked on it for a little while and you might want to speak to Sarah. You know, she did some work over there. Yeah. OK, right. <laughs> Let's have a chat with them. Let's see what they, they've got some PDFs for me to read. But I knew I was missing out on so much information, um, yeah. especially even when I, I was trying to find information, uh, you know, knowledge that I'd created. I wouldn't be able to find it because mm. it all be in Google Drive somewhere, <laughs> you know, in right. an unsearchable. Um, so we, I was actually asked to, to study this and, and look into it, kind of do an internal UX um, uh, research and find right. out how we could improve um, our processes and policies if there's any uh, tools out there we could use and harness to, um, to solve this problem. And there just wasn't. And right. uh, I mean, there is, I suppose that's a lie. There are um, tools out there that claim to be UX repositories and they're probably perfectly good for smaller companies yeah. but at an enterprise level Mm -hmm. we just couldn't do that because if Mm -hmm. i was talking about the basket am i talking about the basket i mean in in the u.s for a start they would use the word uh shopping trolley or cart wouldn't they or uh, um, countries would use um versions of bag um and trolley and cart and such like so you know even then which i'm just talking about you know the different countries use of of the term Mm -hmm. but which if i'm doing some research on on the basket am i researching what's live actually there at the moment was a prototype that's quite different mm-hmm. or could it even be a different um uh for a different uh, product altogether right you know that company had lots of different products and you know mm-hmm. if i'm talking about navigation for instance they've all got navigation maybe two or three right so you know even when you do you just you manage to find a piece of research that someone did and some knowledge that they've recorded about an item yeah. you have no idea Till you've really read every single word, right. what it is they learned and whether it's relevant to what you're working on. Right. So, um, yeah, um, we start. The, we, this was a real big issue that we had is, is that um, what we learned was very dependent on the way that we learned it. Right. And you either, so all of these research uh, repository tools mm-hmm. would either be. Uh, way too vague so it was impossible to actually know whether what you were learning was relevant mm-hmm. uh, or it was too in-depth that you couldn't actually find what you needed you know quickly enough and you know we were spending weeks doing just discovery which is what we called basically looking in google drive to find what we knew already. right <laughs> so um, um talking with uh, some of my colleagues we came up with um an idea of you know what if we could break down a piece of knowledge into its constituent 
parts. I think it's one thing that especially UX designers do. As soon as they face a problem, they want to break it down into more manageable bite-sized chunks. Right. And what we realized is, yeah, a piece of knowledge can actually be broken down into about four different levels. Mm -hmm. And that is um, the fact, like how you've learned it um, and and, uh, what you've learned exactly uh, as a absolute fact, Mm -hmm. i.e. sky is blue. And then you've got um, an insight, which is, you know, what you think that means. So um, I can't think of an example for that. (laughs) that, But um, um, a conclusion as in, you know, what you can, um, what you can do about it. So um, that basically, so it's experiment. We did this fact. We found out this Mm -hmm. insights, which makes us think this and then conclusions. So we'll do that. Right. And actually by breaking down this knowledge like that, Mm -hmm. it means we can, have things that stand independently that insight of I don't, i'm trying to think of an example so there was one i used in that um video that you just mentioned um, um about i i guess in in the video you used the audi- an audience question as an example mm-hmm. oh yes of course yeah i got people to put their hands up if uh, i was making sense <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so you know the fact that they put their hands up is is a fact you know they a yeah. lot of people put their hands up um so the insight I could draw from that is that I was making sense. And the mm-hmm. conclusion is I'm, I'm a good speaker. Right. Obviously there's different ways you can interpret that as well. They're just being polite. So right. there's another insight. We've got two insights mm-hmm. um, come from one fact. What they put their hands up is the fact, but how, what we draw from that could be one to hundreds of things we could draw from that. Right. Right. So we need evidence to prove which ones are correct or, um, you know, which ones are false. And the right. great thing about atomic um, breaking down of research into atomic parts is you can connect them all up. And this mm. is where I got really excited, <laughs> you know? Right. So if we, in this case, if we had a post, um, um, a post-show survey, for instance, after the uh, conference and people said, yeah, Dan's talk made sense, that's better evidence, you know, because they could be a bit more honest and um, in anonymity. I can't say the word, but... Right. Um, you know, so then we've got a bit more evidence that they weren't just being polite. You know, they they actually did generally understand what I was talking about. Or you know, if people ask me questions afterwards, showing that they didn't understand what the you know they didn't get what I was you know trying to say, right. it would actually prove the opposite that I wasn't making sense and people were just being polite. Um, and that's right. great. So that's really important to this enterprise level thing. Is um, if I discover that. Um, you know, um, I think I use the example of um, buttons. Um, more people click on the button if it's red. Yeah. You know, so therefore we should change all the green buttons to red buttons. Right. Uh, you know that that bit of evidence doesn't nece- isn't necessarily enough to make that decision. You right. can with lots of others, it makes sense, mm-hmm. and it's less important if I pick up something um, in an enterprise level. You can really kind of connect lots of things to the same insight. That insight stands on its own despite um, uh, being connected to many different experiments. Interesting. Um, yeah. That, 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 sorry, sorry, go on. <laughs> sorry, I, was, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I was just going to say, um, yeah, that, that's fascinating. And um, I remember going through the example. So is that something, is Gleanly something you've started using yourself yet? Or is it still under yeah. development? 
Oh, it's still very much under development. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's been a it's been a long process, but we're getting there now, and things finally feel like they're really moving along. But um, so obviously, I'm thinking about this um, atomic UX process as a way to solve this problem for large scale enterprise. Right. The main thing I've been using it for is actually just a way to understand even small scale experiments. Right. So if I've done a, a user testing, for instance, I would write up what I learned as facts. And then right. I draw, I'll be actually with the team. It's a really good way to be um, um, more collaborative with, with the rest of the team, get them all in the room and go, right, so I learned this. This is what the lady said. This is what this gentleman said. This is what they did, you know. And then we can actually draw lines out from each of those things and go, well, that makes me think this. Yeah. And if someone agrees, that's great. We put a second insight up or a third one. Right. Uh, and then we can kind of look at those and go, right, what do we do about this? And start drawing out and writing up conclusions for like, um, you know, for different tests. And that's one of the great things about this as well, I think, is it really encourages that retesting and re, um, uh, you know, examining. Um, that you definitely have got the right answer. So, right. Um, that's, so that doesn't, you know, that's really helpful in a very small myopic scale. Right. It's let, you know, it, and something I've been doing with all of my tests from now, and I, I find it just a really useful way to think about knowledge full stop. Yeah, so, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's part of a bigger trend where other people, for example, uh, Tom, Tom Sharon over at WeWork are also talking about atomic research. So it's clearly something enterprises are feeling the need for. Um, what, 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 is, what, is, um, what is the research process? So it's interesting to think of the research process as a data pipeline, essentially, where um, these researchers are sent out to collect data and then sort of pipe it through, cleanse it, make sense of it, cluster it. And, uh, you know, feed that pipeline to the rest of the company so that they can make critical decisions. Now, what does this data p pipeline look like pre-Gleanly, uh, pre-atomic research? Uh, like the, the, the raw mechanics of it. So, like you said, these are collected as presentations and reports. Are, like before you ever came up with Gleanly, were these all just sitting on Google Drive? Like what were the file formats? And also there's yeah. lots of different studies, right? Like there's card sorting. There's so many... Um, there's tree studies, there's uh, diary studies. So what file formats were those sitting in and uh, what did that look like? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting uh, question, actually, because um, it, and I think that's one that really shows the difference with what, it, uh, you know, what we're working on and what Toma, with, uh, uh, Toma Sharon with um, Polaris is working on. It's very similar in terms of its basic um, concept, which is breaking knowledge down into smaller constituents. And I think what they're trying to do is, is almost um, make, encourage people to do more research quicker, and uh, which is really important, right? mm -hmm. uh, especially in companies where they have less of a uh, research presence. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas we're more kind of being more um, source agnostic, if that could be a phrase. Sure. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's come from a video um, on like, you know, a, a remote uh, user videos or uh, in-person moderated testing or large scale kind of quantitative um, research. It, we're just collecting the knowledge of, from any source. It doesn't even matter whether it's good of course because it, it will get um put through this this filter of whether it gets connected to other things and whether other things prove or disprove it as as, as uh, time goes on right so um, 
Yeah, um, I, th I think at the moment, especially for larger companies, you, you know, as you say, you talked about a pipeline. I think it all just goes into a massive vat, you know, of Google Drive or, you know, OneDrive. As you know, I'm working with Clarks at the moment, and they've got, you know, they've got tons of research as well. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, it all just piles up somewhere, and normally never gets seen again. It's right. a sad thing. You know, it's very expensive, and you know, very um, hard-earned um, knowledge, which is full of you know, dynamite yeah. is, and gold is just left um, to, to gather dust and forget about. Right. Um, and then one person leaves and, you know, that's all gone forever probably. Right. Um, and the other part as well, I believe is, is that certain, um, certain research falls into the thing of legends, you know, that becomes myth and becomes uh, mythology. So um, example I use of that is uh, people often talk about um, a great story about, I think it, and it, once again, this is, <laughs> I think this example of like how it goes into mythology, it's always a different company. Right. I, uh, I first heard uh, of being um, Sony um, experimenting, you know, doing user testing around the first walk. Mm -hmm. And um, they had lots of different colors, mm -hmm. you know, bright, bright blue, pink, green, all this kind of stuff. And they asked customers, you know, potential um, in the future customers, right. uh, use um, which one would you like? And they all said, oh, yeah, we want the bright colors. Those, you know, the black ones over there, they're just boring, not interested in those. And at the end, they say, thank you. They're allowed to take a device home. Right. And they all take the black one. Right. <laughs> right. So, and it's used as a really useful kind of reminder to, to not necessarily listen to what users say, but watch what they do. Right. And, and what, they, what they do might be different. Right. But I also use that as an example of this is mythology, right? Yeah. We don't know that way that was tested we yeah. don't know the situation i mean a, a simple explanation might be that um these users didn't feel you know they know that this is back when a, a walkman would have been a very expensive item right Perhaps i think their time was worth one of those beautiful bright blue ones i'll take i'll be modest and take one of the black ones which we've all agreed no one wants <laughs> right um, quite possible yeah, yeah. so uh, you know, i don't know i mean i've just made, made something up there yeah. but the left you know, it's such a good story. It, it, it gets passed down from generation to generation of UX research, right? Right. Um, without that proper provenance. Yeah. And this thing, you know, I don't want to rain on the parade of great stories. Stories yeah. are important. But also, you know, provenance is important and actual facts are important. And if we decide that we're only going to make um, black MP3 players or, you know, iPods or whatever it is nowadays rather than Walkman, yeah. um, we could be missing out on a massive market because of an assumption that was made from you know, a bad bit of research that was a good story, right? right. So, um, yeah, I think that's one thing we're trying to solve with this is um, we use the term make knowledge usable. Yeah. Right. We're trying to UX research. We're trying to, like, make this awesome amount of data, awesome amount of information that is just pouring in from all of these different pipelines everywhere. Right. Um, and rather than just getting drowning in it, you know, mm -hmm. actually make sure that we can make the, the really interesting powerful ones um, that are actually true as well and um, float to the top yeah that's interesting and and one of the other interesting things about uh weworks polaris was allowing other people in the company to sort of self-serve and consume research now let's take the example of uh, like clark's for example is that is that a need that you see of what sorry uh letting other people in the company non-researchers sort of self-serve and consume this research in terms oh, of God, yeah. Absolutely. yeah i couldn't yeah um so i don't know for anyone listening that isn't aware of uh, the the polaris version of uh, atomic research which you know it's very similar as i say there isn't sure. one or the other um they talk about nuggets and the idea of uh doing 
uh, user videos and then breaking those videos down into little nuggets of information, uh, stuff yeah. that we would call fact, basically. Yeah. Um, and they still have the sites the same as we do. I can't remember what they call our version of conclusions. Um, but, it, you know, it's a basic, you know, it's very similar in terms of... Um, yeah. They, they don't really kind of network um, information in the same way we do. They're more trying to generate those initial insights um, in a quick way. And as you say, to encourage people to self-serve and um, people around the company to do their own research and bring it all together, especially mm-hmm. in a company that doesn't have um, a good um, UX research uh, representation. Yeah. So incredibly valuable. And, and we don't certainly don't see it as I've had a great uh, few chats with them. Um, we had a really good um, conversation a couple mm-hmm. of months ago such a lovely chap as well and um uh we de- we agreed that yeah basically they are generating stuff that might go into cleanly in the future right right, right. <laughs> so a really good really good potential partnership potentially you know right uh, so yeah um but going back to your original question should people around the company be generating that i mean there's there's for and against right there's obviously the more people that are involved in in research and creating knowledge the more we will have but it has to be of good quality right and if we end up making business decisions based on poor research and i know better than anyone that research can be done badly right Uh, even when you think you know what you're doing you've had you know some training like i have what i would produce is no comparison to a proper ux researcher who who really knows their stuff right um so there is a danger that you end up um a company ends up misleading itself um because the quality of the the research isn't high enough Mm -hmm. but then you know I think one of the things I like about the UX, um, the atomic UX research mythology is, is it does kind of self filter. If everyone's finding a similar thing, they, yeah. that, that would rise to the top. And it doesn't matter whether one of those was a badly designed test or several of them was, there's obviously some truth to this. Right. Whereas if a person finds something that seems, you know, really interesting, but it's anonymous, um, and other people finding quite the opposite, then that would fall down. We've, we've got this idea of um, an atomic half-life. Right. Quite basically giving a score to not just the quality of the research, but the number of amount of it as well. Mm-hmm. So there's lo- low quality research will point in the same direction. It, it would get a fairly high score. Yeah. Um, but obviously um, a, a large scale survey would be worth more than perhaps um, a remote user test. Gotcha. You know, which might produce um, insights that you know were true for that person, but on on a, on a larger scale. Right. So that so, that nuance is sort of necessary to add some weight to the research. But I guess all research yeah. isn't created equal, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but you know, especially in a company where there, you know there's never enough UX researchers to go around. Is there? Right. <laughs> Not in any company I've worked for, that's for sure. Um, yeah. You know. Um, us UX designers, we do our best with it, but um, you know. But the, and the fact is, whatever the case, um, the whole company is going to generate knowledge. People do have. Uh, everyone probably is. Everyone influences the experience, and a lot of people in a company um, are aware of some aspect of that experience and have some insight in, into the right or wrong thing to be doing. Right. And it's 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 crazy to ignore that and pretend that only, you know, we in the UX team are allowed to, you know, <laughs> to know stuff and, you know, come up with ideas. You know, that's, that's insane, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what is the, so for, at Clark's, for example, what does the research team look like? And again, I don't, I don't know if you're supposed to talk about that. 
I think I can to a certain extent. Um, sure. I hope so. <laughs> uh, apologies to Danny, who's my uh, my boss, if uh, otherwise. So I'm, I'm a UX contractor, so I'm working uh, contract um, with uh, Clark Shoes at the moment. Sure. Um, fantastic. Um, and they're actually really, I mean, it's a several hundred-year-old business, right? Mm-hmm. One of the oldest shoemakers in the world. Mm-hmm. But their, their UX team is all very new. Yeah. So Danny Hearn, who's just brilliant, um, is their new head of UX, um, and he's spinning up a team as we speak. Yeah. Um, so it's gone from um, just uh, Steph on her own. Steph is fantastic. She's been working there about five years now, mm-hmm. basically like um, pushing UX and, and scrolling its values to such an extent that you know there's a whole proper team now. Mm-hmm. And now she's got oh, it's probably about six of us now okay. um, in that team. And of course, there's BAs and um, uh, analysts and such like hundreds of those uh, sure. people, you know, business kind of, uh, you know, uh, learning all the time. Right. So it's fantastic that they've now got a dedicated team for the user experience specifically. Yeah. yeah. And, and I noticed on your LinkedIn, it said you're a UX designer as well as a researcher. Are there any people oh, yeah. dedicated to UX research, like any roles which are exclusively UX research or is the is... clocks? Yeah. Um, yes, I think so. I mean, there's certainly people there that fall more into research than than sure. design, and other people. I mean, I'd consider myself more of a designer than a researcher. You know, right. I'm very UI biased, <laughs> definitely. Sure. Um, whereas there's other people, I don't know whether anyone. I don't think anyone's got the official title of UX researcher or head of UX research. I think right. they all come under the UX um, team. Um, as like UX designers, researchers. So I think we all kind of straddle both of those. But, you know, it's, it's still quite a small early team mm-hmm. for what's a graphic business. So, um, yes, everyone's kind of uh, pitching in on everything at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's, it's quite interesting to see that trend. Uh, even for large companies like Auth0 and TransferWise, they're still mm. hiring their first official UX researchers as of 2018. And... Um, uh, smaller companies, obviously, they can't afford dedicated UX researchers. So um, definitely. I mean, that's, that's a, something that maybe it could be an argument is is that actually maybe they can't afford not to. Yeah. Um, I certainly miss having somebody that or people that I can turn to and go, you are the UX research people. Help me with this. Right. Right. Um, make sure that I'm doing this right. You know, guide me and, and, and uh, help me with this data, especially. You know, right. I find uh, data side very difficult um to you know to comprehend we're working with uh, third parties that generate um you know uh, things like uh, qualitative tests and a b tests and things like that and uh, give us good in- really deep insights i mean one thing i'd say about clarks um i was really shocked with when i joined is just the quality and amount of data they've got on tap right um you know in terms of um uh uh, yeah using these kind of third party tools to to understand you know this is where people are going this is what people are clicking on and you know here's where the issues are and where the blockers are right and um have the team to really deal with those and um make those better interesting um, but of course you know i feel that um a company like that needs definitely to have um researchers to be able to go yes okay this this is interesting but you've missed this insight over here or you you're misunderstanding what you're what you're seeing here right. and actually you know and we, we see saw it recently we did a small test um on uh, the colors of shoes mm-hmm. and we actually learned something really interesting about reviews mm-hmm. by accident it had nothing to do with the thing we were testing but mm-hmm. it highlighted an issue that we weren't aware of before right and it was 
because we were actually working with one of the third party uh, companies that were helping us understand the data better that they pointed this out we're like oh wow that's amazing <laughs> you know yeah. and i think that that's the difference between a ux designer and a ux researcher a researcher would spot those kind of connections and those kind of um, right. and things where you know we tend to be a bit you know more focused on yeah that's on- interesting is it possible to talk about that specific insight i realize that might be proprietary. Uh, yeah sure um so I'm, I'm trying to even like just remember the details of it <laughs> yeah because um, stuff like that is always fascinating stuff like that is the counterintuitive yeah. stuff which really like really proves that the science works right yes absolutely um yeah i think um what was it uh, what was it i don't i don't i can't really go into too much detail of sure. course because you know it's it's uh, not my place to but basically <laughs> we had a test I'll tell you what, i'll talk about, there's a better story i think i could tell sure. you that i understand because it, uh, and this was back when I was working for Just Eat. Sure. Um, so Just Eat is a national, well, the biggest um, food online delivery um, ordering system in the world. Mm. And uh, we, um, the menus are very long mm. and in very in one column. And uh, I was um, asked to redesign the menu for the, for the UK and Europe, mm-hmm. which was, um, I was very proud to be able to do. Right. And. Um, so the problem was is customers are always going, oh, God, the menu is so long. And, it, you know, it's, you've got the big wide screen on desktop and you've got this tiny little column in the middle that goes on for miles. Um, and it was interesting that when we did user testing, the shorter the menu, the worse the conversion. Actually, the longer menus did better. That people right. complained about the experience was worse. But the metrics said opposite. <laughs> so we were looking for ways of like kind of how can we deal with that? Um, mm. One of the ideas we had was put it in two columns that didn't do very well at all and that you know it was even worse of experience and we're talking about modal modules like having like the starters here and you know fizzy drinks over here and you know burgers over there mm-hmm. in like little kind of modules customers loved it mm-hmm. absolutely loved it they rated the experience really high mm-hmm. but they failed on even quite basic tasks mm-hmm. so they were, they were really usable um you know and they really enjoyed using it and they, they in percept their perception of the ui was it was usable yeah but we could see our measurable tests they were failing miserably right. <laughs> and okay, well, you know what do we do here do we um do we serve them the the worst but more enjoyable experience or do we stick with uh, you know less enjoyable but you know um measurably better experience the the one which the one which achieves the this the the latter achieved the business goal more i guess that's it well you know where where do do we fall on and and to be honest i suppose we're not actually delivering a good experience either you know the customers think they're having a good experience they feel happy about it Mm -hmm. but if they can't find the dish their perfect dish you know (laughs) because it didn't work for them and you know i'm doing even the best by them let alone the business yeah so um yeah, uh, we had to ask that question. And what we actually ended up with was like a compromise where we put it in modals, but we mm-hmm. put all those modals in a line. And suddenly that long column was exactly still the long column it used to be. In fact, slightly longer because you've got this extra UI, you know, detail. Mm-hmm. But customers felt it was more broken up and they felt it didn't feel like a big long list anymore. Sure. So they had the benefit of um, of the lovely experience, but mm-hmm. they weren't feeling they had the benefit of the um, the the, uh, the UI that actually worked, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was really interesting on how like the perception changed so dramatically. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's um, interesting. Uh, yeah, it's really crazy. And I and I was reading. I think I read somewhere on your LinkedIn about a story of how a kitten on the unsubscribe page uh, led to a decrease in uh, by oh, in twelve yeah. percent decrease in unsubscribe button hits. 
So this was back in the um, uh, in the e-cigarette uh, business I had, which okay. we basically um, we had um, uh, we, we did subscription boxes of flavors. Yeah. Um, so each month, a box of um, you know interesting flavors from around the world would turn up on your doorstep. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I'd ever worked with an ex- a subscription model before, you know, maybe SaaS before, but systems yeah. as a service, but never like, you know, one of these kind of uh, uh, subscription boxes. Mm-hmm. And the biggest challenge with one of those businesses is what they call churn, you know, people unsubscribing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, you know, trying to work out why people are unsubscribing and, and testing different different methods. It was fantastic having this little kind of business that was all mine that I could, uh, and also I, I wasn't paying my, my bills either necessarily, you know, it wasn't my main piece of, a piece of work at the time mm-hmm. um so i could i could experiment on it you know yeah. <laughs> try different methods on it and mm-hmm. um one thing we learned is um I, I should say i learned is that a lot of people would unsubscribe if they had a bad experience such as um they got a flavor that they weren't expecting say they'd said i don't like mint flavors and they got a mint flavor flavor by accident or they got the same flavor twice or the delivery was late something like that something very easy for me to solve but instead of speaking to me what they do is unsubscribe and move on mm-hmm. so adding a simple form on there asking them what the problem was would give me the opportunity to get in touch and go oh your box hasn't turned up i'll send you a new box you need what you paid for oh, you yeah. got a flavor you weren't meant to i'm going to send two out for you you know mm-hmm. i'm quite happy to do this because i'll retain you as a customer and you know actually some of those um people who had had a bad experience would become some of our most loyal customers because we treat them so well right but one of the things I did one day is I put up a picture of a sad kitten. <laughs> just as a, you know, yeah, I'd like to have fun with this thing. You know, it's a fun business and yeah. it, was, it, it wasn't meant to be taken too seriously. So, you know, yeah, please don't go. It's a sad kitten. Does that make you, you know, does that make you want to stay? Yeah. The crazy things it did. I saw 12% drop of uh, people unsubscribing with that picture. Yeah. And I, I, you know, the next thing I had to do is try and find out why, because it can't literally just because there's a sad kitten, it makes people feel bad. What it did is it stopped them. It was that little bit of friction that stopped them in their tracks. And yeah. It gave them a little bit of a smile, perhaps, and maybe warned them ever so slightly. But they stopped and realized that we were giving them the options to, um, uh, to let us sort out their issue. You know, we'd have a button there going, tell us what's wrong and we'll, we'll sort it out. You know, don't unsubscribe, unsubscribe just yet. You know, give us a chance to make things right. right. And they did. Right. So, um, yeah, it was probably, I think I said in there, it's, it's the most valuable picture of a kitten ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. And this is this is uh, back in the early days, I guess. This is still when products like MailChimp were taking off and uh, take, getting on more of a personality, which ap- appealed emotionally to people. So um, I think in all of these examples, you were sort of just ahead of your time a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I was it was accidental but I think you know personality is an interesting one because you know one of the pages companies seem to have the most fun with is a 404 page right yeah so you want to do something and something's gone wrong you've got this error and they're like well hey let's have a little bit of a joke and a player (laughs) and after you know I'm looking at going actually no I'm I'm in quite a you know quite annoyed at the moment I'm trying to find out where my delivery is it hasn't turned (laughs) up like kind of making jokes with me no no come on let's, let's take this seriously <laughs> um, i don't think i'm the first to point this out um but a good example recently is um um me and my my wife uh, um were going off on holiday so i was trying to book her a ticket now she's got my name and her name is double barreled mm-hmm. so it's a really long name <laughs> um 
and um, so I went I went on to uh, I can't remember what the company is and I don't think it's fair to name and shame them but um, we were trying to book online and I put her name in this is her surname you need to put what's on her passport it said very clearly okay so I typed it in your surname is invalid yeah <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> you are <laughs> my surname's valid what 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 do you you know it's not mine it's my wife's but you know what do you mean her surname's invalid how dare you (laughs) You yeah i'm doing exactly what you asked me to do and you're telling me that my name's invalid you know something that couldn't have anything more personal um and and then what it was it was too long and their system for some reason couldn't cope with characters so you know i had to call them and um uh, you know, it's, they could sort it out over the phone quite easily. Yeah. Um, but I shouldn't have to, right? And I was thinking already, that's quite a, you know, terrible little bit of, of UX. It's, you know, you haven't thought about you know, how you're communicating. It's your problem, not my problem. My name's right. not invalid, your system is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the worst thing is, when I tried to, like... Um, uh, try and contact them. They had all of these kind of really, you know, they, they were trying to do the equivalent of Sad Kitten um, when you weren't able to book a, um, a plane ticket or you're thinking you may have bought a, bought a plane ticket you won't be able to use because it's got the wrong name on, right? Yeah. And I was getting so frustrated. I mean, I'm quite a calm person, <laughs> but I was like, you know, why are you joking with me at this point? It's the wrong time. You know, I'm stressed. <laughs> it's the end of the night. I want to get this ticket booked. I'm worried. I've just wasted like, you know, 500 quid and I'm probably going to get charged 80 quid to make a stupid little change. It isn't my fault. And you're joking with me. Like it's, you know, it's no, no skin off your nose. That's you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's the right time, the right place, isn't it? Yeah. That's a great insight for our listeners. Think twice before having fun with your 404 page because your users might not be. Yes. Um, all right. And let's go back to Gleanly. So what is what is the vision? Do you do you envision all UX researchers using this tool eventually yeah. in a year or two year or two from now? I, I truly believe that um, that Gleanly or if not Gleanly, a system very similar to it um, yeah. will be one of those things you have set up you've got sketch if you're a ux designer you've got uh, envision probably for for prototyping uh you've got something like Airtable around there and you've got slack and you have something like Bingley. yeah absolutely believe that and i think even you know for large companies especially but for small companies and independent uh, freelancers as well um and one of the things i'm quite excited about is have the repository i think is something that no one solved and i really believe that we've I think we understand the problem if we haven't necessarily um, solved the problem. Sure. I hope we solve the problem, but, you know, I'm not going to say we have to, you know, that's hundred percent proven and it seems to be moving that way. But I think we're the first people to really understand the problem, especially for larger companies, which is really important, right? It's the first step. Interesting. Um, but so it's um, the way I'm looking at it as well is, I mean, it's interesting you were saying about communicating to the wider company earlier and, and having that, the rider company be part of ux research because uh, that's part of what i want this to be as well it's not just a you know quite a cold um dry place to to communicate um what we know um, but also be a place where anyone in the business can come in and see what the ux team is working on at any stage right um and not that kind of jira or aha kind of way which is more kind of time management but more kind of a more of a communication out yeah um you know, I can see that Dan's working on this at the moment. I can see that um, Joanna over there is, is working on, on this. She's trying to solve this customer goal. You know, Dan's working on this part of the platform. 
etc etc um absolutely so, I, um, I think that's one of the things envision really solved that it let the rest of the company have visibility into what designers were doing and sort of participate in that yeah absolutely um, and this is one of the things I'd like to see it do is that obviously it would record um, what we've learned from, say, like an Envision prototype, uh, mm -hmm. you know, testing it and also be able to give you visibility of that prototype, for instance. Right. Uh, and um, but at the same time, you know, it, it would and that, that's there for posterity as well. So you can come back a year later and go, right, why was this decision made on um, on the menu over here? Why, why did they do this rather than something else? It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, when you go and see, you know, how they got there and the decisions that were made to get to that, ah, right, now it's making sense. Yeah. Uh, and I don't really think there's, there's tools out there that you can use for that. You know, yeah. I'm using um, uh, Google Sites at the moment and um, uh, the, the uh, Microsoft version, what's it called? Um, SitePoint. Sure. Um, to do a similar thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's very limited and it's not really designed especially for that. So, yeah, yeah we've got this vision of, uh, of a system that has a very, you know, kind of, um, communicative and friendly out, um, um, way to communicate out to the wider business allows and um, you know record hypotheses and, and, and problems that they've noticed and ideas that they have mm -hmm. um, and uh, but also give people within uh, any part of the research and, and UX um, team uh, insight to what every everything else we know right um, in order of what's useful as well you know not just a a, a torrent of, uh, of of data actually stuff in a way that's consumable usable usable and most of all actionable absolutely yeah I, I think it's an enormous challenge when can we when can we expect to see the first is there a definite timeline on uh the public no. launch um <laughs> no I mean, so we started the it's been you know we've been quite a long time in, in getting to this stage. Now, the main reason for that is uh, both me and my original business partners, three of us now, um, uh, have just had babies. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, all of the things that have been happening with that. So there's a lot of, uh, and we're also, none, neither of us are working on this full time. This is very much a side project. Sure. So, you know, um, it's left very little family and, you know, um, uh, time and, you know, time for actually working on it. Sure. So that slowed things down. Um, but also, um, we're, we're, I'm trying not to make the same mistakes as we did with other products like Beatree and sure. properly research this as we go. So yeah. we started building a very basic beta, which actually became an alpha. And mm -hmm. we tested internally. And I've tested with some of the people at Clark's and, um, and other companies like that. Yeah. Um, and what we found is, is my original UI didn't solve the problem. So sure. we've gone back to the drawing board. We've changed things around. I'm going to be sending anyone on the beta list. Um, mm -hmm. So... I should say this if anyone's interested in being on the beta list <laughs> uh, and being the first to know about um, what's going on with Gleamly, please please get onto um, the website and sign up. Um, but Absolutely. we uh, uh, also in the podcast description, there's going to be a clickable link to Gleamly. If you're interested, please go check it out and do sign up for the beta. Daniel will send you more yeah. information. And you can choose not to get all of the, my emails as well. But <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been very good at this recently you know it's been quite sporadic emails but um, you know things are really moving now so sure. um, now actually um a clickable version we were talking about envision a second ago mm -hmm. uh, probably be um, clickable prototype um mm -hmm. for the new UI. so before we start building it again i mean the back end is, is basically complete as far as i'm aware sure. um 
and um, super secure as well. They've done an amazing job on the scalability and security on the back end. But the mm-hmm. UI wasn't working. Um, and I won't go into details about why that is because it wouldn't make any sense in an audio um, uh, sure. platform. Yeah. Um, so you, uh, anyone that's on that list will um, hopefully receive a, a link to the clickable soon. And um, I'd really appreciate people's feedback on it to make sure that we are doing the right thing. Right? We would, there's no way we could have known that that wouldn't have worked till we built it. You know, we didn't do the wrong thing by building that, but we did the right thing by building it really lightly. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So let's show whether we we've solved those problems, but there's only there's only so much you can learn from a clickable in, in this kind of context. Um, so then the next stage will be building a very basic version of that. So, you know, at the beginning, our system won't allow you to connect between experiments. All that stuff that I'm saying is really important. Mm-hmm. So we need to get the basics right first. Right. Fair enough. Yeah, I think we're, we're all looking forward to um, checking out the clickable prototype. Um, and please write to Daniel if you have any more questions. Daniel Pidcox started a vaping business, has worked in the food delivery business, and now is pushing the boundaries of atomic research. Um, yeah, thank, thank, thanks, thanks so much, Daniel. Thanks for sharing. Um, it's really, really fun hearing all these stories. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm afraid I'm a bit of a chatterbox when I get going. You get me uh, wound up. So uh, <laughs> hopefully it's been useful and you know, vaguely interesting. <laughs> it's, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on.